Welcome back to the program. The recent suicide of Robin Williams put in bold perspective that we really don't know very much about the inner lives of the people that make us laugh. From Lenny Bruce to Richard Pryor, from Johnny Carson to Bill Cosby, the demons and private lives that drove these comedians were often anything but funny. Cosby was particularly unique in several ways. He broke the color barriers for television with I Spy. He appealed to a predominantly white audience, yet he subtly advanced a civil rights agenda. He broke the rules, yet didn't shout while he was doing it. The Cosby Show became a part of American iconography, and some would argue paved the way for the election of Barack Obama. But what we really know about this influential comedian has been mostly underwater for some time, until journalist Mark Whitaker has now pulled it all together in his new biography, Cosby, His Life and Times. Mark Whitaker is the author of the critically acclaimed memoir, My Long Trip Home. He's the former managing editor at CNN and was previously Washington bureau chief for NBC News, as well as a reporter and editor at Newsweek. It is my pleasure to welcome Mark Whitaker to the program to talk about Cosby, His Life and Times. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. When we look at the overall influence of Cosby, when you look back at all that he's accomplished now that he's in his 70s, is his greater influence in the realm of comedy, or is it more in what he did in subtle ways over the years in the realm of race? Well, I think it's both, and I think I show that in the book. I mean, obviously, you know, as an entertainer, he's been a pioneer over and over and over again. I mean, starting with his comedy albums and the storytelling style of comedy in the 60s, uh, his uh, groundbreaking uh, role in High Spy that you mentioned. Um, uh, then he moves on in the 70s to children's television with Fat Albert and the Electric Company. And, and let's not forget his commercials, where for a time he was the leading not only African-American pitchman, but probably pitchman of, of any sort um, in advertising. And that's all before the Cosby show. So, um, and, you know, I talk in the book about how at each stage he both, not only were, were all of those ventures very successful, but they were all revolutionary in their own right. And then they all opened doors uh, for uh, African-Americans in the entertainment business. But, you know, the Cosby show leads to all of these other iconic sitcoms based around stand-up comics like Roseanne and, and Seinfeld and so forth. But alongside that, I also uh, show in the book, I think, how Cosby has really, you know, he's been shaped by his times, but he's also in turn uh, shaped those times. And how, although he left race and politics out of his humor for much of his career, and often was criticized for that, he was always very conscious of the impact that uh, he was having uh, on the racial dialogue, on the attitudes of white people uh, toward, toward, toward black people, but also toward the sort of sense of pride and, and, and empowerment within the black community, which I think was always, and I think I show in the book, was always just as important to him as being a mainstream crossover um, uh, talent. How conscious was that sense of walking that line between, one, having the influence within the black community, doing the things that he wanted to do, accomplishing the things he wanted to accomplish, and yet keeping that separate in some respects from his comic work? 
Well, you know, on the one hand, I show very, I show how he made these decisions very early on in his career when he was just starting out as a comic uh, in Greenwich Village and just getting his start um, on 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 television. And on the one hand, it was an artistic choice. He wanted to have his own voice, and Cosby has always been very heavily influenced by jazz. In, in, in his teens, he wanted to be a jazz drummer. Uh, he might, he might <laughs> if he had been better at it, he might never have become a comedian. Uh, but he's still you know, very um, influenced by this idea that you should have your own original voice. So he starts out, actually, early in his career, modeling himself after Dick Gregory, uh, talking about race in his humor. And then he decides, no, 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 I don't want to be another Dick Gregory. Uh, I want to have my own style. And that's when he starts going in the direction of uh, telling stories about childhood and so forth and doing non-racial and also clean um, material. On the other hand, it's also very clear, you know, in all the interviews that I went back and found from those early days, that he felt it was revolutionary in and of itself to say, look, a Negro comedian, as they were called in the day, Mm -hmm. doesn't just have to talk about race, you know, and when he and Robert Culp co-starred on I Spy, their motto was, our statement about race is going to be a non-statement. Just the fact that we're going to show these, uh, you know, these, these spies who are true partners and friends on screen in and of itself was sort of a revolutionary statement in race relations uh, at the time. And then, of course, with the Cosby show later on, the fact that he shows this black family that in some ways is very much like any family and that all families can relate to. Um, but at the same time shows a lot of cultural pride in that show. And I think people forget that, but I, I remind, uh, I, I, you know, I, I have a whole chapter in the book about all of the kind of subtle references to black culture with jazz or black history, um, uh, historically, uh, black colleges, Uh, that are all in the background of that show. And in fact, the original idea for the show didn't have the Huckstables as upper-middle-class people. They had them more as working-class, and that that changed due to the influence of Cosby's wife, primarily. Yeah, now, it's a really funny and, and, and I think, uh, uh, really telling story for for a number of reasons, but particularly having to do with the -the behind-the-scenes influence that Cosby's wife, Camille, has always had in his career. So... When Marcy Carsey and Tom Werner, um, who at the time were just starting out as on their own with their own production company, uh, went to pitch the idea of uh, uh, to Cosby of returning to television in a sitcom, and 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 you know what people forget is that after I Spy, Cosby had had three uh, different TV shows that had all failed. So you know, and also at the time in the early '80s, the sitcom was considered dead. Um, NBC, which, you know, uh, became, you know, uh, picked it up, uh, was in the cellar. So, um, you know, it, it wasn't at all clear at this point that it was going to be a big hit. So, uh, Cosby invites them to dinner at his house in, in, in LA and they have this long meeting, which stretches past midnight, uh, in which first Cosby is saying, I think, uh, the character on the, on uh, my character on the show should be a limousine driver. And my wife should be uh, uh, Hispanic, and she should uh, be a plumber or a carpenter. Uh, and he was, you know, waving a cigar around, being very forceful about this. And Carson Warner very quietly but persistently said, no, 
we think, as is reflected already in your, your own comedy routines, that it will be funnier if, um, and more relatable if the couple is, uh, are highly educated, they're professionals, but they're still tearing their hair out about dealing with their kids like every other, uh, like all other parents. Um, and at the very end of this long meeting, Cosby gets up from the table and he looks at Marcy Carsey and he says, you know, I think my wife might agree with you. And indeed, it was when Camille Cosby was briefed on this meeting that she sided with the producers and said, Bill, you know, they're right. This is going to be better. And it's also going to be where it's going to send a better message, uh, both to white viewers, but also to black viewers. If we show a family where, you know, um, the, uh, the parents, you know, are highly accomplished. Um, and so that's how you got Cliff and Claire Huxtable, uh, doctor and lawyer. And all of this wouldn't have been possible without essentially I spy, which kind of broke the color barrier in television. And, and people refer to Cosby as kind of the Jackie Robinson of television in that regard. That's right. And, and I spend, you know, I spent a lot of time in the book about, on the Cosby show and how it came together and the behind the scenes and what the relationship between all the, the uh, uh, actors were um, off, off stage. But I spend I spend almost as much time on on I Spy, which you know people who remember that show and loved it, you know I think will love. But I think other people who don't know that much about it will be very interested um, uh, to read. Um, you know it, the, the idea. Sheldon Leonard, who was at the time a very successful TV comedy producer, had this idea for a, for a drama based on sort of the spy craze, the sort of post-James Bond spy craze, of these two spies who would travel the world undercover as tennis players, and one would be white and one would be uh, black. And partly because there were so few black actors on television, um, there wasn't an obvious choice for um, the, 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 the African-American role. And he chose Cosby, whose career was just really starting to take off as a comedian, but who had never acted. And Cosby was so bad <laughs> in the initial pilot and in the table read that the executives at NBC wanted to replace him. And it was only because Sheldon Leonard stood up for him. And Robert Culp, his co-star, threatened to quit um, if they didn't keep Cosby. And um, gradually they developed this amazing rapport uh, both off-screen and on-screen, um, uh, the two actors. And Cosby sort of settled into, um, you know, his persona. And eventually, he won three consecutive acting Emmys uh, for, 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 that, uh, for that show. And, and although it only lasted three seasons, by the time it was over, there were featured African-American um, actors in a dozen different uh, primetime television shows, and you had Julia with Diane Carroll, and you had Mod Squad with Clarence Williams. So it, 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 it was a successful and revolutionary show in and of itself, but it also opened a lot of doors. It was also the broader influence of the show. I mean, I guarantee, and, and you probably have experienced this, if you tell people that that show was on only three seasons, they'll tend not to believe it, that there's a sense that it was on for such a long time. Yeah, no, that's that's right, and and it was you know it, it was so novel in in so many ways. So, you know, another thing that that you know um, had have never been done before was to take a show on location to to exotic 
locales around the world. You know, they went to Hong Kong, they went to Japan, they went to Mexico, they went to Greece, and half of the episodes were shot on location and the other were shot in a sound studio in Los Angeles. You know, that had never been done. The other thing that I, that I point out in the book is that the relationship between Bill Cosby and, and Robert Culp basically redefined the buddy genre. When you think about it before, you have, you know, Bing Crosby and Bob Hope, you have, you know, Abbott and Costello, you have the comic duos. But after that, you know, so many of the sort of classic buddy comedies become interracial. You know, so you have Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte, you have Mel Gibson and Danny Glover, you have uh, Will Smith and, Tom, and um, uh, Tommy Lee Jones. So, so, you know, all of that starts with I Spy. It's interesting also that the way I Spy dealt with race in many ways was by not dealing with it. Yeah, no, exactly. And that was, a, 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 you know, a, a decision that um, uh, Culp and Cosby made. And, uh, you know, I describe a scene. They had often the writers on the show, and they, they had a very contentious relationship with the writers um, who, you know, would write these scripts and then, Cosby and Culp would, would improvise. And, um, but they particularly resented any time the writers tried to introduce racial humor or even racial content, because it was a drama, uh, into the scripts. They called them watermelon jokes. And often they would just ignore them or they would reword them um, uh, in a way that kind of made, made, made fun of them. Um, and the other thing that I think in addition to the fact that, you know, they were this uh, interracial team, the fact that they were so cool, you know, and that they kidded each other and they, and, you know, they used this kind of, you know, inside lingo, um, you know, not only did it show, you know, the races getting along, but it showed them having this really sort of cool rapport that I think really resonated. And still, you know, if you go back and you watch those shows, I mean, a lot of the show seems just in terms of the style, you know, of, and the pace of the show a little dated, but, but their rapport is still very contemporary. Talk a little bit about Cosby's comedy work and the evolution of his storytelling and certainly some of the routines that we all remember so vividly. Well, you know, again, I, you know, I show, it's really interesting to go back and, and, and see how, you know, in the early 60s, he's uh, a student at Temple University and where he barely got in because he had dropped out of high school and joined the Navy and he got a GED, but then they asked him to take an SAT score. He had a combined score of 500 and he only got on because he sort of talked the track coach into giving a track, track scholarship. But while he's at Temple, he starts trying his hand at, at stand-up comedy. And at first, he's kind of all over the place, first performing in kind of bars and, and, and little nightclubs in, in Philadelphia, and then when he goes to Greenwich Village. And he's stealing jokes from other comics, and he's trying to be Dick Gregory. And, but he's also kind of playing with this idea of not just telling jokes, but telling stories. And I describe a scene in the book where, which you know, he describes as sort of the epiphany moment in his career as a comedian. He was uh, uh, working as a, a bartender, a kind of joke-telling bartender um, at, um, in, in North Philadelphia while he was going to school. And he goes out to grab a quick bite at a Chinese restaurant nearby. 
and he sees a table full of people who are just laughing their heads off. And he starts to sort of pay attention. He realizes that they're all listening to one person, uh, this man who is not telling jokes, but telling stories. But, he's, but the stories are so funny, and he's telling them in such a funny way that, you know, everybody, you know, did, are, are just having the time of their life. And this, like, image stays with him for days and weeks afterwards. And he decides, he says, you know, that's the kind of comedy I want to do. Um, you know, I want to be like your best friend who you think is the funniest guy in the world, which, you know, and this is before he takes off, before he gets any of his comedy album, that idea was already in his mind and it combines two things. One is, one is, you know, tell stories and then find a way to make them funny. But the other is this idea of intimacy that actually you will have a more sort of intimate relationship with your audience. Uh, if you're if you're telling them stories and drawing them in with stories, than if you're just trying to bowl them over with jokes. Where did he learn that? Who were his influences, if any, as a comedian? People, you know, sometimes describe Bill Cosby as a kind of latter day Mark Twain. Well, in fact, uh, when he was a, a just a little boy, um, before he was even enrolled in school, his mother who uh, worked as a maid, as a domestic, and had dropped out of high school, but actually was a very, you know, was a very bright woman and, and, and uh, you know, someone who um, wanted to be a teacher before, you know, financial hardship forced her to, to, to drop out of high school, uh, would read to, to, to little Bill Cosby when he was, you know, two, three years old, and she would read him from Mark Twain, you know, her favorite writer. So, in fact, Mark Twain was probably his first influence in terms of hearing a, 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 a writer, his voice in his head. The other big early influence for him was his grandfather, Samuel, who was a, a factory worker who, you know, had grown up in the rural South, whose father had been, had been born a slave. Um, but, and he was a very, but he was a very religious man. And when Cosby was a little boy, he would sit him on his lap and read him stories from the Bible. But rather than just kind of read them in a kind of rote way, he would act out all the parts with different voices. And Cosby, to this day, will tell you, if you ask him, where did you first learn to become a storyteller, he will talk about his grandfather, Samuel. Were there any other comedians or people like Gene Shepard or other storytellers that, that had an influence on him? Um, yes. Yeah, so, so, you know, one of the interesting things, again, in terms of the sort of historical backdrop um, uh, of Cosby's life is that although he grew up poor in a housing project in North Philadelphia, you know, a segregated neighborhood, more or less, um, uh, and didn't have contact with very many white folks when he was growing up, he came of age um, in the 40s and the 50s when first through radio and then through television, the early days of television, uh, even someone like him could be exposed to white comedians. Um, so although, you know, there were black comedians who would occasionally come through North Philadelphia on the so-called Chitlin circuit, you know, people like Red Fox and Moms Mabley, Cosby saw them once or twice, but basically he didn't have enough money even to go to the, you know, see anybody perform live. But on the radio, he listened to Jack Benny, 
um, in the early days of television, he, when he was in high school, he scraped together enough money, you know, uh, doing odd jobs to buy from a pawn shop one of the early televisions with the, that almost looked like radios with little porthole screens. And, you know, he would watch uh, the Colgate Comedy Hour, and he saw um, uh, Jerry Lewis, and he saw Stan Levinson, who's a comic who people uh, have forgotten about, but who very much had this much more sort of folksy style of storytelling uh, than joke t- telling. Sid Caesar, I mean, he was kind of absorbing, uh, absorbing all of it, you know, with his face pressed up against this little screen, um, you know, living in North Philadelphia. Did he ever consider, or to what extent did he think about being more controversial as a comedian? Because certainly there were plenty of those coming along at the time as well. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, when he's, or, you know, in Greenwich Village, you know, he's, um, Performing first at the Gaslight Cafe, and then later at the, later at the Bitter End, and and you know Lenny Bruce is 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 there, and Mort Saul is there, and you know Woody Allen and Dick Cavett and others are just starting out. Joan Rivers, um, but again, you know I describe how when he first arrived at the Gaslight, he was doing more controversial and racial humor. But there's a it's interesting the 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 his first summer, he's still in he's still in college at Temple. He goes to Greenwich Village to try his hand at comedy for the summer. He's performing at the Gaslight Cafe. A New York Times reporter comes down to do a feature story about him. And it runs in the paper, and it uh, describes him sort of as a young Dick Gregory and sort of, you know, with a kind of angry racial act, essentially. Um, And Cosby, when he saw it in print, was very upset. Because, yes, he was doing some racial humor, but he was also, you know, doing some of this kind of uh, storytelling. And once he saw himself in in print being pigeonholed as just another kind of angry black comic, he said, I'm going to wean myself from that entirely. I'm going to go in a completely different direction. Um, uh, but as I, but, uh, but as I say, you know, he was always when, and, you know, he was challenged by reporters, including, you know, reporters from Ebony and Jed and black reporters very early on about why aren't you using your platform to expose racism? And, you know, he would say, you know, look, you know, one, w- why can't an African-American comic, uh, just be a comic but also, he said, look, you know, it's also just as powerful in its own way to do humor that shows people what they have in common than to just emphasize their differences. How was he seen during that period in the black community as a result of taking that position and being so different than people like Dick Gregory and, and Pryor, who was just beginning to come along? Well, you know, it was a combination. I mean, he, he, was, he was a little controversial from the very start. I mean, on the one hand... You know, black folks were, um, you know, certainly I talked to a lot of people his age who, uh, you know, I talked to Sonny Rollins, for example, the jazz musician and, 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 and many others who remember being very proud of Cosby and his accomplishments and particularly I Spy, the idea of, you know, a, a black actor, you know, with such a prominent role was, you know, really uh, something that everybody kind of identified it with and, and, was, and was proud of. Um, but, you know, in other elements of the black community, 
he was viewed with a certain amount of suspicion. And I tell this funny story about how uh, he was very shaken up by the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, as were all black Americans at the time. And it really kind of caused him, as, as well as so many, to, to almost to, to, to sort of rethink how much was really being accomplished with this sort of integrationist approach. Um, and so one of the ways he responds, he goes to King's funeral, um, he intensifies his involvement with civil rights causes, uh, but another, he also responds by, for the first time, agreeing to go perform at the Apollo Theater, which he had never done before, and he had kind of resisted because he thought he was kind of above it. Was, you know, he would say arrogantly, come see me at Madison Square Garden. Um, and when, on, the, on his first night there, they could barely fill the theater. And he was very upset about this, and he went to the promoter and he said, you know, what's wrong? And the promoter said, look, in this neighborhood, you know, all no people know is that, you know, you're on TV with a bunch of white people. So, you know, um, they think that, you know, you, maybe you just work for the man or maybe you're a spy like the one you play on TV. And, and so he had to put the word out on the street up in Harlem that, you know, he was, you know, a supporter of civil rights, that he was a friend of Harry Belafonte, that he was giving all the proceeds uh, of, his, uh, of his performance at the Apollo to Malcolm X's widow. And, you know, once that word got out and also his white fans started to come uptown, uh, he, he, he packed the house from then on. One of the other aspects that it's impossible not to, to put in perspective with respect to Cosby and most of it came about as a result of, of the Cosby show, is how much money he made over the years. Yeah, he did, although, again, another story that I think most people aren't aware of is that, uh, so, you know, by the late 60s, thanks, you know, partly to I Spy, but actually mostly to, to the combination of, 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 of six best-selling comedy albums um, for Warner Brothers um, uh, and... Uh, all the money he was making, you know, on the road performing, you know, Cosby was raking in several million dollars a year, which was a lot of money at the time. And his uh, manager, uh, a guy named Roy Silver, convinced him to put it all in a production deal. They were going to be big Hollywood moguls and produce movies and records and so forth. And within a matter of year, years, he completely screws it up. And Cosby comes within $50,000 of being flat broke and has to fire Silver several times with him and kind of rebuild his, um, his fortune. And, and, and as part of that, he actually moves his family. They were living in Beverly Hills in this big mansion. They sell it and move to a farmhouse in western Massachusetts, uh, partly because he had enrolled in the University of Massachusetts to get what eventually became, uh, you know, uh, advanced degrees and a doctorate in education, uh, but also because they couldn't afford to live in Hollywood anymore. Um, and, and throughout the 70s, he's basically rebuilding his fortune. TV isn't working. His record albums aren't selling anymore. So basically, he's making his money performing, uh, and, and most of it in, in Las Vegas, and uh, doing commercials. Um, and he makes enough money doing that, that by the time the Cosby show comes along, he's already a wealthy man again. But what made him really wealthy, which made him at the time in the late 80s, the wealthiest uh, celebrity in America, 
at least in terms of you know yearly earning power, was the syndication deal for the Cosby Show. Uh, it was when that show went into reruns. At the time, the deal uh, to sell rerun rights to the Cosby Show to local stations around the country uh, and around the world was the most lucrative syndication deal in the history of television. And, of course, one of the great tragedies for Cosby was the murder, the death of his son back in 1997. Yeah, and, and you know, I there's more in the book about that that I think has ever been uh, reported. Um, not only very in great detail exactly what happened and, and, and how they found the killer, but also who Ennis Cosby was. He, he was, Cosby had five children, like the Huxtables on, on the Cosby show, uh, but one son. Um, and Cosby had always wanted a son. He had a very difficult relationship with his father, who was sort of an unreliable drunk. Um, and he you know, wanted to show that he could do a better job. Um, and Ennis was a terrific kid, you know, charming, handsome, but he had learning problems, and he struggled for years in school, and this was a great source of frustration to, to Cosby, who cared so much about education, and they ended up having some, some big fights about it, including some physical fights. Um, but eventually, when uh, Ennis is a, a, a college student at Morehouse College in Atlanta, he's diagnosed uh, with dyslexia. And this, you know, turns things around for him. He learns how to sort of cope with, with, with his learning disability. Cosby introduces that as a storyline, as, you as you'll remember in the, in the Cosby show mm -hmm. with Theo, discovering that he's a dyslexic. And Ennis is on his way to getting a doctorate in education and devoting his life to uh, helping kids with learning disabilities. When he goes on vacation in 1997 to visit a friend in L.A., gets a flat tire on the San Diego freeway, pulls over to an access road, and while he's changing the tire, he's murdered by this sort of delinquent who I think was, you know, just looking to rob somebody. Um, and, um, you know, it, uh, you know, I sort of show in the book not only just uh, how uh, devastating that was to... But, you know, to, to Bill and Camille Cosby uh, at the time. And, you know, I tell the story of the day of, that they learned of the murder and how they buried him and so forth. But also, you know, sort of from then on, it really changes uh, Cosby. And a, a lot of the, the Cosby that, that, that people have seen, you know, uh, in the last decade in particular, where, you know, after being so quiet about racial issues, he's become so outspoken about, the need for education and for better parenting in the black community, you know, the, 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 his tone, you know, has been controversial. But, but I, I believe, and I think I show in the book, that a lot of that, you know, comes from, I think, wanting to give some meaning to this, to this awful tragedy um, and to uh, preach both the, 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 the things and the values that, that helped turn Cosby's life around when he was a young, when he was young, but also that he believes that his son Ennis stood for. And in many ways, finally, that all comes together in this speech that he gives at Howard University. That's right. So this was 10 years ago uh, on the 50th anniversary of the Brown versus Board of Education decision. Uh, and um, there was this big gala in Washington to honor the heroes of, of that struggle 
And Cosby was supposed to come on at the end of the program to get a, an award for his philanthropy for all the money that he and his wife have given to historically black colleges, say a few things, funny remarks, and then get off the stage. But Cosby got so upset sitting in the audience listening to speaker after speaker talk about all the progress that had been made when he felt that, in fact, not enough progress had been made, um, that by the time he got out, he was just so enraged that he sort of went off on this 20-minute tirade. Um, you know, and he, 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 in the speech, um, he talks a lot about in, in what he meant to be sort of funny but also came off as, as quite harsh terms about the behavior of young people in, in the black inner city and you know, the way they dress and the way they talk and that they don't respect education and that they, you know, uh, they, you know get sent to jail for, you know, stealing a, uh, or shot for, for stealing a piece of pound cake, which became, you know, the, 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 the name, the speeches, the line, the speeches remembered for. But, um, uh, but, you know, I, not only do I show that, in fact, this was not all planned, but that, you know, Cosby was really making this point, not... It, you know, later he was criticized as being sort of an elitist who was out of touch with, with uh, you know, with, with young black America. But the fact was, you know, he got so passionate because he saw himself in those kids. That having grown up in a housing project, having lived on the streets of North Philadelphia, having, having pulled himself up in his mind, you know, through learning discipline in the Navy and embracing the value of education and getting himself into Temple University, these are the things that had made it possible for him to become the success that he was. So then getting so emotional, he was saying to these kids, you know, these are the things, don't wait for the system to change because you could wait a long time. These are the things that you can do to change your own life. Mark Whitaker, the book is Cosby, His Life and Times. Mark, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.